0: Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories, with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday.
1: I tell you, gentlemen, science has agreed that unless something is done and done quickly... Man, as the dominant species of life on Earth, would be extinct within a year. <laughs> Homes, I repeat, stay in your homes. Your personal safety, the safety of the entire city, depends upon your full cooperation with the military authorities. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation, because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible so terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe them.
2: We may be witnesses to a biblical prophecy come true, and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation, and the beasts shall reign over the earth.
1: Yes, the earth, the skies above and the seas below infested by swarms of nightmare creatures, cruel or deadlier than the armored giants of prehistoric eras. Here is a wild headlong flight into terror as the desert erupts with the grim battle for survival. Here is a fear frenzied moment of suspense as mankind totters before a thing that multiplies faster than it can be killed. Here is a desperate plunge into the black depths of the earth where human courage challenges the brute force, the slashing jaws, the poison fangs that guard the subterranean nest where the beast spawns its terrible progeny.
3: To all units, to all
1: units, condition red, drain 267 is the target area. Repeat,
3: condition red, drain 267 is the target area.
2: You can't take a chance. It might poison the whole city.
0: Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Them from 1954. The studio was Warner Brothers. Release date was June 18, 1954. The running time, 94 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Molden from his classic movie guide gives it three and a half out of four stars. He writes, first-rate 1950s sci-fi about giant ant mutations running wild in the Southwest. Intelligent script by Ted Sherman. Extremely well-directed with a memorable climax in the Los Angeles sewers. Fess Parker has a small, memorable role, who played Davy Crockett and Daniel Boone back in the day, and look fast for Leonard Nimoy at a teletype machine. Spock! Now, if you've heard past episodes, specifically the very first episode, I mentioned them before. I saw the movie on television as a kid because my dad made a point of telling me that this was his first movie that he saw in a movie theater. It's kind of crazy. It wasn't like Bambi or Dumbo or anything like that. It was a campy sci-fi movie about giant killer ants. Interestingly enough, my first theater movie was E.T. Not campy, but definitely sci-fi, so go figure. All right, let's get into the making of the film. So after World War II, A number of Cold War sci-fi films were created in the 50s, with the trend being the effects of nuclear radiation gone wild. As Leonard Maltin mentioned, Them is often considered the best of these films. And I covered another good one with the movie Tarantula a few months back. There was also The Deadly Mantis, The Black Scorpion, and of course, The Fly, which was a combination of radiation and the Frankenstein monster. Let's not forget Mothra, which was the arch nemesis of Godzilla. For a supposed campy giant insect film, the cast has fairly big names in it. You have Edmund Gwen, who was, of course, Santa Claus in Miracle on 34th Street. James Whitmore was in it. And James Arness, who would go on to play Marshall Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke. As Malton mentioned about Fess Parker, producers of the Davy Crockett series went to the screening of Them to see if James Arness was right for that role. But it was Fess Parker that impressed Them in his one brief but memorable scene as a mental patient, and he was hired for the show. Now, James Arness didn't mess out either. According to the legend, John Wayne liked Arness's performance in Them so much, he recommended that he be hired for the lead role in Gunsmoke. Director Gordon Douglas had directed films since the 1930s and would go on to further success in the 1960s with films like In Like Flint with James Coburn and a number of Frank Sinatra detective films like Tony Rome, The Detective, and Lady in Cement. The film originally was going to be shot not only in color but in 3D, however the studio was not impressed with the test shots in color and the idea was scrapped. And as I will mention as I get into the film details, this particular film actually works better in black and white. It's much more creepier that way and hides some of the imperfections of the low-budget special effects of the time. Alright, let's get into the film. So, again, the film is in black and white. However, there's one thing that's in color, and it's in the title credits in bright red letters and outlined in bright blue, and that's them. The film opens in a New Mexico desert as a report of a wandering young girl was called in. Two police officers drive out to the crime scene with the assistance of a police plane. The main officer is Ben Peterson, played by James Whitmore, and his partner Ed Blackburn, played by Chris Drake.
3: 5W to 301A. Go ahead, Jenny. I think we're chasing the wind, Ben. Maybe the guy who sent in that report drank his breakfast. We might as well call it. Hey, wait a minute. off the road I'll keep circling her until you pick her up ten in 1010 ten, ten, ten.
2: What's your name? Who do you belong to?
1: 5W to 301A.
3: Go ahead, Johnny. There's a trailer about three miles ahead you. You better check it. 10-9, Johnny. I said there's a trailer about three miles ahead of you. Pull off to the side of the road. I didn't see anybody around it. You'd better check it out. 1010. Okay, Johnny. 1010. What's the matter with her? I don't know.
2: Sunstroke? Ah, she's not sunburned. She couldn't have been out of the sun very long. Looks like she's in shock.
1: Uh, Johnny spotted a car and trailer up ahead. Maybe she's from there.
2: Yeah, maybe so.
0: As the officers mentioned, the little girl is unresponsive and continues to just stare straight ahead without speaking a word. She does end up falling asleep. The officers then drive to a badly damaged trailer that is parked nearby to investigate.
1: Waking up, unless somebody here can identify her. I'll check it.
3: What is it? Have a look.
2: Must be 10, 12 hours old. Whatever happened here must have happened either last night or early this morning. Uh huh. Check outside, will you? Yeah.
3: Traffic accident, was it? Uh-huh. This wasn't caved in, it was caved out. Did you find anything? No footprints or tire marks. Found
1: this. I picked up just one. There's six or seven more scattered over there. Sugar. Yeah. Say, uh, there's something over here you ought to take a look at. I don't know whether there's anything important or not, but see what you think. bottom lines never come down into the desert no no can't ever live leave a print like that maybe something was set down there bag or can or something like that
2: yeah
3: could be almost anything oh i found these inside and look put in a call get fingerprint and moulage equipment out of right away
0: ben while investigating the trailer noticed some cash scattered around along with a gun that was recently fired a police photographer arrives at the scene along with an ambulance for the girl.
2: You know what happened to her? No.
1: Don't know her name? No. Look, take good care of her, huh? Give her a nice, easy ride right into the hospital. I'll be with her all the way. Good.
2: wind it's pretty freakish in these parts yeah look i'll be in there as soon as i can i want to be there when she starts talking
0: the high-pitched squeal caused the little girl to sit up and look frightened it's the first response she's shown since being found by the police she's then taken to a hospital for observation ben and ed then head to a local general store owned by an older man and find that the store is destroyed in a similar fashion to the trailer where the girl lived after further investigation they do find the body of the store owner dead the other similarity between the crime scenes at the store and the trailer was a good amount of sugar strewn about the floor ben also notices that the cash register was full these were not traditional robbery crimes and the same high-pitched squeal also can be heard in the distance. Ben heads into town while Ed further investigates. When the squeal becomes louder, Ed is no longer seen, and we hear gunshots and then a horrific scream by Ed. The next day, Ben is at the police headquarters, distraught that his partner was killed while standing guard at the store. Everyone is baffled by the crimes. Ben initially believes it has to be a homicidal maniac on the loose, as financial gain is not the motive for any of these murders. So the FBI is brought in, led by Agent Robert Graham, played by James Arness. The medical examiner finds that the body of the store owner had injuries that likely could not have been caused by an average attacker. But the strangest finding was that his body contained a high amount of formic acid. Though our investigators do not notice yet, regular-sized ants have amounts of this acid in their body. Two research scientists are sent to New Mexico from the Department of Agriculture. They are a father and daughter team. Harold Medford, played by Edmund Gwen, and Pat Medford, played by Joan Weldon.
3: Now this is where the Ellison car and trailer were found. And 12 miles down this road is the Johnson store. Thank you. So how come the FBI office in Washington sent that print to the Department of
2: Agriculture?
1: They weren't able to identify it. Sergeant, you only found one print the one this cast was made from.
2: That's right, miss. Have you identified it? The medical officer's report on Mr. Johnson suggests we were certainly wrong to even consider this business might be a hoax. Read that, doctor. Tell me, in what area was the atomic bomb exploded? I mean, the first one, back in 1945. It was right here
3: in the same general area. White Sands. Mm-hmm. Ah,
2: 1945. That's nine years ago. Yes, genetically, it's certainly possible.
3: Now, look, we're grown up. There's no need to play footsie with us. As a matter of fact, we resent it. Now, if you people know what this thing is, Doctor, I suggest you tell us. We're assigned to this case, too, you know.
2: Mr. Graham, we cannot tell you until we're absolutely certain of our theory. Now, I'd like to first stop off at the drugstore, and then go and see the little Ellison girl. She's still in shock, Doctor. She hasn't talked yet. And after the girl, I want to examine the territory where you found the print. saying?
1: As I explained to Mrs. Johnson, the little girl's aunt, we hesitated using a curare to diminish the muscular spasms because she's too young. Mm. Narcosynthesis would be a useless procedure until we've overcome the condition of aphonia.
3: What's aphonia? Loss of voice.
1: She's a classic case of hysteria conversion. Only a severe catharsis could jolt her at all. May cons- I have
2: a small glass, doctor? Oh, yes, certainly. Pat, that acid we got? Acid. Formic doctor. Thank you. It may provide the jolt you need. Thank you. <coughs> visit the desert
0: now gentlemen it's getting pretty late doctor later than you think by holding a small glass of formic acid under the little girl's nose it did indeed cause a reaction and shook her out of her catatonic state ben and robert take the doctors to the original crime scene in the desert Harold's original theory is that some sort of strange mutation could have occurred from the atomic bomb test back in the mid-1940s. Harold finds a large print which astounds him.
2: Over 12 centimeters. Twelve! That would make the entire... About two and a half meters in length. Over eight feet. See if there are more. This is monstrous. So is the disappearance and murder of five people, Doctor. Yeah. The direction of that print would indicate it came from that way. Perhaps, perhaps we should visit the store. There may be more there now.
3: Now look here, Dr. Medford, before we do any more visiting any place, I want to know exactly what this
2: it is. Gentlemen, I understand your impatience. I know you two are concerned with solving what is essentially a local crime, but please believe me, I am not being coy with you, no. If I'm wrong in my assumptions, then no harm has been done. But if I am correct, and the mounting evidence only fortifies my theory, then something incredible has happened in this desert. In which case, none of us will dare risk revealing it, because none of us can risk a nationwide panic. Panic? An ant. An ant? I don't believe it. It's not possible. Then this is what got Ed Blackburn and Gramps Johnson in arrest? Yes. A fantastic mutation. Probably caused by lingering radiation from the first atomic bomb. Notice its odor? Yeah. Formic acid? Well, then that's why that little girl reacted so violently. And the coroner's report said that Gramps was filled with the stuff. See that? It's the stinger use their mandibles to rend, tear, and hold their victims, but they kill with that by injecting formic acid. Mr. Johnson was stung to death. There's no time to lose. We must find the colony, the nest. You mean there's more of them?
1: This was probably just a scout foraging for food. You heard the sound.
3: The stridulation. It communicated with others in the colony.
2: Communicate? You mean these things sent messages? Of course. All insects have means of communication with their own kind. is to a biblical prophecy come true and there shall be destruction and darkness come up in creation and the beasts
0: shall reign over the earth and yes we get the reveal of the giant ant and yes it looks like a giant fuzzy marionette but it's still terrific to watch and being in black and white does help with the eeriness of the scene, along with the blowing sand from the desert. And as we heard, Harold yelled during the shootout, firing at the antennae of the ant renders them helpless. A nest is discovered, which Harold wants to keep secret in order to not cause a nationwide panic. However, the police force wants to justifiably destroy the nest to prevent a mass outbreak of giant mutant ants. The methodical doctor has valid reasons for waiting, however. The ants don't like the heat of the desert during daytime, as they frolic when it's cooler at night. The best time to destroy the nest is at the peak high temperature during the day, and that's when the vast majority of the ants would be taking shelter in their nest. But keep in mind, these nests aren't easy to destroy, as they dig super deep into the earth with various tunnels. Flooding the nests is the best option, but since they're in the desert, a water supply just isn't feasible. Other options are extreme heat and then cyanide gas to destroy them. With missile launchers, a perimeter is formed around the nest that causes extreme heat, and one of the ants appears in the entrance of the nest. Then the gas is dropped inside. Next, Ben and Robert must go inside the nest with the flamethrowers to destroy all the ants still alive. Harold is too old to go on this mission, so Pat insists on going. Ben and Robert are against the idea, but they do realize they need her scientific knowledge, and they begrudgingly agree.
4: Right away. Look, held together with saliva. Yeah, spits all that's holding me together right now too.
3: Knock them off.
1: The chamber looked caved in, maybe from the
3: first bombing. Sealed up that way, the gas couldn't reach them. Well, then, if we meet around any more alive ones, and science or no science, we're getting out of here.
4: is dead now right
3: no not the ones that hatch from these now destroy everything in here burn it what i said burn it burn everything
0: As I've always mentioned about films from this era and before, the score, even in B-films, is fabulous and adds so much tension to the film. I wish newer films would do this. Also, while modern viewers might not find the special effects that special, the use of flamethrowers and the creepiness of being in a cave in black and white is still pretty cool to watch even today. Unfortunately, even though they were successful in killing some of the ants, as Pat mentioned, The two empty egg cases were newborn queens, which likely flew away. This could cause a huge problem as just one queen could lay thousands of eggs, and now there are two on the loose. Harold now decides it's time to inform Washington, D.C. and the military. Harold gives a demonstration of the potential destruction of these giant ants.
2: Now these ants and related species are common to most of America. As a matter of fact... You can find them in backyards, empty lots and fields throughout the temperate zones of the world. They haven't changed in either form or habits for more than 50 million years. Here, for instance, is one such specimen that got himself trapped in amber, which we know is at least that old. Ah, now we come to some different kinds of ants. The big fellow there, feeding on the smaller red grease eaters, is of a savage species called Campanotus bichinus Maya. He's of a desert variety, very similar to the giant mutations we found in New Mexico. There is a side view of a small nest. Those white objects are ant eggs. Ants don't see well at all. They hear, smell, and locate objects entirely with their radar-like antennae. Only after food or an enemy is located with the antennae are the savage mandibles put to work. Now, gentlemen, watch this demonstration of power. A pebble has blocked the entrance to the nest. That creature is determined to remove the obstacle. Note how the mandibles are used to grasp the pebble and finally pull it aside with only a slight assist from another end. Now there's the same pebble on a laboratory scales. Balancing it is a dish containing 20 ants. We've learned that one of these quarter inch long insects can lift 20 times its own weight. That's equal to one of you lifting a ton and a half or more. And here are rare shots of a newborn queen and her consorts. Technically, she should be referred to as a princess until after the mating flight. Now, there is a close shot of a winged male. The males are unequipped for survival beyond the mating and die soon afterwards. The queen flies on, or more precisely, is borne by the winds until her need prompts her to seek a place to lay eggs. Does a queen ever fly away from her nest once she's established it? No, never. She loses her wings after the wedding flight. See, one has dropped off now now she starts her function of establishing a place in which to lay her eggs and begin the nest queens live quite a long time they continue to lay eggs from the one mating for from 15 to 17 years here are ants at war as you can see ants are savage ruthless and courageous fighters this fight lasted 72 hours between those two alone. Ants are the only creatures on earth, other than man, who make war. They campaign, they are chronic aggressors, and they make slave laborers of the captives they don't kill. None of the ants previously seen by man were more than an inch in length, most considerably under that size. But even the most minute of them have an instinct and talent for industry, social organization and savagery that makes man look feeble by comparison uh, how large were the ants you found oh the smallest measured nine feet in body length that gentleman is why you are here to consider this problem and i hope solve it because unless you solve it unless these queens are located and destroyed before they've established thriving colonies and can produce Heaven alone knows how many more queen ants man as the dominant species of life on earth will probably be extinct within a year doctor
0: <sighs> <laughs> so cue the ominous music And now it's a full-scale war against the giant ants, and we get to see a young Leonard Nimoy in one of his very early film roles.
3: those Texans. When biggest stories are told, Texans will tell them. That ought to fit in with the kind of stuff they're looking for upstairs.
2: Anybody found out yet what's going on in this building?
3: No. Real T.S. stuff. Top secret.
0: Robert and Pat visit a man named Allen, who's been put into a mental hospital due to his sightings of UFOs and other creatures.
3: Okay, Kibby. We'll meet you at the airport in 20 minutes, then. Right. He says he's going to have us in Brownsville in less than three hours, Doctor. Good.
2: Good luck, Bob.
4: They ain't kidding me. Nobody's kidding me. Not you, not nobody. This is no hospital. This is a loony bin a nut house. You think I'm crazy? Well, I don't care what you think I'm not. I saw those things with my own two eyes. You think anybody could make up a story like that? A guy would have to be nuts to make... I mean, look, you're a flyer. You didn't get that yard goods on your chest sitting on the ground. You've seen guys blow their stacks, haven't you? You think I act and talk like a guy who's lost his marbles? No.
1: Won't you please tell us what
4: you saw, Mr. Grody? I've already told those head-shrinking doctors four dozen times. I'm sick of telling I tell him I get laughed at, or clucked over, or clucked over, or laughed at. You promise not to laugh at me? Promise. Okay. I was flying south from Corpus Christi, heading here, Brownsville. I turned in from the Gulf, heading for the airport about 20 miles out. And all of a sudden, I see these, these flying saucers. Three of them. One big one and two little ones. I had to do some fancy flying or they'd run right into me. I went into a dive and I lost them and I, I sat down in the first place I saw, so it was a street. I never been so rattled in my life. I cracked up a little shirt. I plowed into an old Ford and ended up on somebody's front porch. But who wouldn't lose their head a little after seeing something like that?
1: They were flying saucers?
4: Well, I don't know what else to call them. They were shaped like, well, like ants. I know that sounds crazy, but that's what they were shaped like. The big one was maybe 15 feet long and had wings like a fly or something. And the other two seemed to be chasing the big one. And one here and two here, and they were zooming around like regular kamikazes. Like scared me out of my pants. Excuse me, ma'am. It ain't as if that Ford was a brand new one. It was beat up to begin with. So what's all the beef? You don't believe me either, do you?
1: On the contrary, we do.
4: You do? Good. Listen, now, when you what get direction on the outside. Where were
1: these uh, flying saucers going the last time you saw them?
4: West, I'd say. Yeah? due west. Hey, will you all get me out of here?
3: We'll speak to the doctor about it.
4: I sure would appreciate it. Try and get my clothes, too. They wouldn't give me nothing but these slippers. Wouldn't even give me a rope to hold up my pants with. We'll be seeing you. Be right neighborly if you could help i'll sure be hoping sure
2: well mr graham
3: yes tell me how was your talk with mr crotty well i think you're wise to keep him locked up doctor i've recommended his release he's not demented i'm convinced he's trying to pull a publicity stunt with this weird story well, that's why your government would appreciate it if you kept him here so he doesn't get any publicity the government he's have absolutely no visitors and if any information is given out about him washington will hold you responsible doctor I'm sorry, I can't tell you why this is essential. We'll let you know as soon as possible. We'll send you a wire and tell you when he's well.
0: The ants are now not just limited to New Mexico. So how will the military take them out? Well, you're just going to have to watch the final 30 minutes and find out. You get tons of scenes with up-close giant ants, and parts of the ending might surprise you. As I mentioned before, this is the first movie my dad saw in the movie theater, so it's always been something I've known about. Now look, it's not going to win any awards, definitely not, but even today, it's still very enjoyable to watch, even without the modern special effects, and in some ways, it's much better without the CGI, because all CGI kind of looks the same now. Also, while this might seem like a campy sci-fi flick, the underlying message of the unknown effects of a nuclear fallout from weapons is still very much a hotbed topic of today. All right, some fun facts. The flamethrowers used in the movie were standard World War II weapons, and they were loaned by the US Army. The actors handling the weapons were World War II combat veterans who had used them in battle. Joan Weldon revealed that the temperature reached 110 degrees during filming, and she and Edmund Gwen were wearing wool clothing. Gwen was struggling with advanced arthritis, although it was unnoticeable to audiences. He was really in pain and was helped offset by his valet. The viewer never sees more than three giant ants at one time. That is all that were constructed in total. Now the sound that the giant ants make as they approach their prey is a recorded chorus of bird-voiced tree frogs that were located in the southeastern United States. Occasionally, a gray tree frog can be heard on the soundtrack as well, as these species can often be heard together at the same wetland. Now, the infamous Wilhelm scream appears often in this film. I could do an episode just on the phenomenon that this was used so much in films, but if you've ever heard the following scream, it all comes from the same recording throughout history. <coughs> all right, as you remember when I did the tarantula episode, a person that surprisingly loved that film was Lindsay, and so I'm like, well, if you like tarantula, I should show you them, so how will she like them? Will she like it better than tarantula, or will like it equally, or maybe she doesn't like it? Who knows? We're going to find out now as we talk to Lindsay, and then I'll be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Welcome back, and we're back with Lindsay, who just loves her giant insects.
5: I do. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me on the show again, Brian. It's good to be here and talking about... Big bugs.
0: (laughs) Not bed bugs, but big bugs.
5: Big bugs, yes.
0: So I introduced Tarantula to you, which actually came out a year after Them. Them was kind of like the beginning of the giant insect craze and the sci-fi craze of the 50s. And as I mentioned already, this was the very first movie that my dad saw in the theater. So um, before we get into Them, just from what you remember, did you enjoy Them or Tarantula better?
5: This is tough because I got to be honest, I really loved both of these films. <laughs> like, this had a great storyline and story arc. Like, it made sense. It was interesting. I liked how it was shot. Like, it It was intelligent. Like, it was an intelligent kind of monster movie that may have even had some political implications to to it right or like it was trying to make commentary on the politics and and such of the time i i don't know i thought this was great i mean i loved tarantula but i actually think them is a slightly better movie i I, i'm not dogging tarantula at all by saying that i really i have lost no love for those (laughs) furry fiends however i just think that this was sort of a more cohesive really intelligent movie. I, I I like the way that the folks who created Tarantula made the scale look as interesting as it did for the spiders.
1: Mm-hmm.
5: Them, the ants are a little more campy, the actual ants themselves. Sure. But the film that kind of surrounded this, even including like how they changed locations so many times from like New Mexico to L.A. and then they went to D.C. and... I don't know. It's I think Them was a better film.
0: Well, it's probably they probably had a bigger budget. I think Tarantula was a, a B film, whereas this, I think, was pretty much an A.
5: Yeah, I mean, yeah. I could see where this would have had real legitimate budget. I, I don't know. I, again, very surprised by these because I've not seen these films before. Um, and as you know, I'm not well versed in films from 40s, 50s mm-hmm. or older. But I will say that I'm really surprised how well they're put together. Like, you hear stuff like a movie from the 50s about giant ants. You're like, this is going to suck. But somehow, they don't. Like, if you're willing to give this a chance, I, I really appreciated it. And the way they pulled the story together. Even there's one part where, you know, you've got this scientist and his daughter, right, who are trying to explain how this happened. Like, how did we get these giant ants? Right. Oh, so, you know, we had nuclear bomb testing and that created a certain scenario which would allow for these giant ants to exist and thrive and threaten humanity. It it was weird. It almost like made sense <laughs> in a weird kind of way. I I was so surprised that it seemed that intelligent.
0: Well, a lot of this comes, right, if we know our history, um, the fallout from World War II. And of course, the nuclear bomb and the, you know, everything that was used and obviously the testing in New Mexico. So that's obviously how these mutations occurred. So there was some genuine fear about, especially during the Cold War, are we going to uh, go nuclear on each other uh, post-World War II? So I think this was kind of the panicked, And so instead of as you were saying, making it country versus country, well, maybe you'll get these giant sci-fi type uh, scenarios from all this.
5: Yeah, I mean, obviously, the nuclear element was prevalent in the film. And what's interesting about it is, yeah, I think it expressed a lot of fear of the unknown, of what's happening, this new realm that Mm -hmm. we're entering into, and what does it mean? But... I almost got the sense that it was a bit anti-war, anti-bomb sentiment sure. in here that was kind of this thread running through it. Which is very interesting because back then you think of most things as propaganda for what was going on, you know, mm. in the country uh, at the time. And this one almost smacks a little bit of like, I don't know, the anti-establishment. Like it's kind of saying, hey uh maybe we should be looking at this whole nuclear thing and maybe we should think that this war thing's not awesome mm-hmm. and you know maybe we need to put like a laser fine point on this is this okay is this are we okay with this and i don't know i felt like there was a bit of a political question mm-hmm. around this running through which made it that much more interesting. It it would have been interesting if it didn't do that and if that didn't come up and if I didn't think it was a factor. But I think it was a little bit relevant and possible, and that just created another um, really interesting layer on top of an already pretty complete film.
0: Well, I also think it's interesting. If this happened, I mean, obviously this isn't going to happen. If this happened today, you could never keep it a secret because of social media and the internet and things like that back then i mean they really could keep it under wraps because everything was so compartmentalized people in that town might have saw something weird but as we found out from the one guy that was in the mental hospital they decided to keep him in the mental hospital not because he was crazy but because they didn't want to cause a panic
5: yeah i mean and it's so funny can you imagine a moment where you're you know, online at work or whatever, doing something socially, social media, whatever you're doing. And then all of a sudden you find out like there's Chinese. martial law, like here in the Bay area. Like yeah. I mean, nobody's going to, first of all, nobody's going to accept that. But second of all, you're right. Like, the way news traveled back then, you had an opportunity to get ahead of it a little bit, Mm -hmm. you know, if something kooky like that was going to occur. But now, I mean, oh my gosh, there's like no hope. And the second somebody saw something like that, it would be plastered all over everything. The panic would ensue immediately. It would be so interesting. Like if they tried to make this film today, I think like we always talk about when we look at these older films and think like, What would happen if it was made now versus then? Yeah, there'd be so much gratuitous violence and blood and, like, heads popping off and, like, organs exploding when the ants come and get you. you don't need to do that. No, and you didn't see any of that or, like, the carnage that you would see Mm -hmm. in the early New Mexico scenes with the destroyed trailer and the destroyed general store. Like, instead of it just being like, whoa, something bad happened here, what happened? It would be like this horrible like blood stained yeah. gory scene right
0: well it's, it's 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 lazy writing so instead of actually doing as you said the story arc and building tension we're just going to show you the gore because that's you know that that's a shock value
5: this was a really good story though right like i feel like i feel weird even saying it like a story about giant ants who were formed from like the fallout of nuclear bomb testing in New Mexico was good. You should see it. Like it seems like a silly thing to say.
0: Well, you heard it from Lindsay, but you I'm
5: serious. So-
0: well, the cast is actually very good. So James Whitmore was a famous actor. Edmund Gwenn, I was, I was telling you. I mean, he played Saint Nick. Uh, Chris Kringle in Miracle on 34th Street, which is a classic. And uh, James Arness was also very uh, popular as well. So this had a great cast. And then one of the guys, at Fest Parker, ended up being David Crockett on the Disneyland. You know, TV show. So,
5: you point out a lot of character actors in this yeah. too who popped up in famous yeah. TV and film. Yeah, the one
0: time. of them was in Weave It to Beaver. The guy with the glasses was, uh, he was kind of the oafish guy. Lumpy. Okay. It was Lumpy's father. <laughs> Lumpy? But I think his name was like Charles or something like that. So, it was Lumpy. Because yeah, everyone Lumpy remembers Lumpy. Eddie Haskell, but well, no one remembers Lumpy. Anyways, Lumpy's father. I, I do. He's not a character actor. remember him. In any case, this and is a must is. watch. You uh, I'm going to show you non stop giant ant movies and sci-fi. I films. think
5: I am
0: I kind guessed. of
5: falling in love with this sci-fi campy 50s thing. I didn't think I'd like any of this, but when I gave into Tarantula reluctantly and really liked it, and then you put this one in front of me and said, "Oh, we can watch this." I'm like, "All right, you know, I'm not going to be naysay on this one. I'm going to yeah. I'm going to go for it because I really like Tarantula and that one surprised me and let me see if like this one gets me there too, you know? And honestly, like again, no, not dogging Tarantula, but this one was better and it definitely felt more like what could have been Hollywood like blockbustery film from back then more so than what like Tarantula looked like. But this one had a great story and I never wondered what was going on or I never thought it was weird. People who may have listened to other times we've had conversations and I've watched older films. One of my chief complaints is like I generally think I understand things in in film, but some of these older ones confuse me because the story arcs like leave out what I feel is pertinent information and I don't understand how we got from A to D, like what happened to B and C. And these don't. Like, it's very clear what's going on, and it's very easy to understand where the story arc is taking you and and to hold you, your attention and, and, you know, get what's happening. And uh, I really appreciate that about these. The science fiction ones don't really leave you hanging too much. So I, I would keep watching these and I would absolutely recommend this. I mean, you've got to understand that the like plot is ridiculous. And you've got to understand that, of course... Giant ants in like 1954 or whatever are gonna look really campy. It, like, what else would they look that bad? But they don't look that bad, number one.
0: And black and white helps.
5: Black and white helps. But consider the day and consider how like novel this would have been for then. And I think you could get right past it. Like, I don't think it will really bother you. No. You gotta know what you're getting into before you get into it. But if you know that, I actually think most people would be like, "This was, this was good." Yeah.
0: All right, next giant bees. Oh
5: my gosh! I don't know. I, I have a little bit of PTSD from
0: my most
5: recent bee experience. Some honeybees. Maybe this is why you. Event. Maybe
0: that's why they attacked you because they're like, "Oh, you like these giant insect movies?" Oh my gosh. We're well, give If I your-
5: had given it another week, I probably had would have had like. Thirty million bees in there, um, and being allergic doesn't help. Doesn't so that help. was uh, that was not great, but yeah, maybe I have insects on the brain, like thinking about my whole bee experience. But I would watch other films like this, other weird, campy, sci-fi fifties films. I I can see where there may be people who just love this genre, and ugh, can't believe I'm gonna say this. I may be one of those people.
0: Hell yeah. We got you into giant insects. Well, thank you for watching, Lindsay. No,
5: thank you for inviting me to watch this one. This one was good. I give this one two um, thumbs up or antennas up or claws up or...
0: A pack of sugar cubes?
5: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Watch it.
0: If you are ever in the San Francisco Bay Area and still love collecting or renting DVDs or VHS tapes, come check out Captain Video in San Mateo at 2837 South El Camino Real. Captain Video is open six days a week and closed on Wednesday and one of the last traditional video stores still running in the United States. New movies you can rent for $2.99 a day. Old movies you can rent for 2 dollars for five days. And if renting isn't your thing, you can also purchase anything you find in the store. Be sure to tell Ira that you heard about Captain Video from the Damn Good Movie Memories podcast. Happy renting and happy collecting at, at Captain, Captain Video. video. I'm Hang Out and Chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat. Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on
3: ThatMetalStation.com.